0: Welcome to episode seventy-one of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I think this will be a bit of a gear and observing, more like an observing planning session, perhaps. Shane, I don't know about you, but uh, I didn't get that much observing in during this cloudy, snowy, icy week.
1: I I didn't get a lot of observing in, but what I made, what I made up for a lack of uh, quantity, I made or sorry, I made up for the lack of quantity with quality. And okay, I have uh, an interesting report to, to tell you about
0: good good stuff. Okay, but I uh, should say we are two amateur astronomers and what that means is that we just do astronomy for the fun of it. So uh, we've been doing this a long time, both of us. And so we enjoy looking at the stars, uh, finding the constellations and exploring uh, the planets and deep space that lies within. So how was your week Shane?
1: Oh, it was good. Busy at work. Uh, cloudy most nights. Um, I think Friday night was the only night we had a marginal night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know what? This coming week is looking good. So that's mm-hmm. uh, that has me excited. Um, I think we have some clear skies in our forecast, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah. How was your week? Uh,
0: really, really busy, unfortunately. So uh, yeah, Between between that and uh, was working every day. I've been on call a lot and it's been busy on call. Uh, typically it's not that busy on call. And uh, yeah, I'm actually also taking a course through work. And so between those three things, it, it's just been plugged for me, uh, unfortunately. And, and that one clear night, um, you know, we ended up, it, the clouds ended up moving in. So I think you were able to get out before the clouds came in and yep. then And then last night, last night I was kind of aiming for, I thought Saturday won't be too bad. I was still too bad last night because I ended up working most of the day yesterday, uh, which is Saturday. Uh, And then we had like some gale force winds that came out of nowhere. So uh, Mm -hmm. even if it had been clear, it was going to be super windy. So yeah, but Mm -hmm. you were able to get out one night. Let's, let's hear about it.
1: Yeah. So let me start with the telescope. Um, I think I mentioned on one of our previous episodes that I was going to, um, uh, kind of salvage an old, old telescope out of my garage and and make it a winter telescope. Okay. Um, So what I, what, what I was wanting to do is have a telescope that I could leave in the garage. Um, and my garage is not heated. So, you know, it would just stay on a mount. It would be quick and easy to put out into the backyard. But the nice thing about leaving it in the garage is that it won't get full of condensation at the end of every session by bringing it into a mm-hmm. warm house. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I, our listeners probably know that I have a bit of a fascination for some of the older telescopes. And uh, a couple of years ago, I ended up buying three really old Tascos from another collector here in Canada. Uh, he lives uh, near Winnipeg and he sold me three Tascos of varying age Uh, varying models, but they all were, they were all made or the optics were all made by Royal Astro optics, which, um, from the time, so this is like the period of the fifties and the sixties, uh, during that time, Royal Astro made really, really good optics. Um, they're well-renowned for their quality. And, um, I got all three telescopes with mounts for 300 Canadian dollars. So pretty good price. Uh, I ended up giving one of those telescopes to my brother. I sold one, and I still had one in my garage. Mm. And so, anyway, I pulled that one off of its mount, and it turned into a frankenscope to get Ooh. this thing operational. What size? Um,
0: What's, what size is it? It's a refractor, is it?
1: It is a refractor. It's a sixty millimeter, 60 millimeter. refractor with okay. a, a focal length of nine hundred and ten millimeters. So. All right. Pretty long, pretty slow in terms of uh, F-stop or F-ratio. Um, however, it was, you know, it was in need of some TLC to get this thing going. Uh, the good news, so the, the objective, the glass, the lens, uh, mint, like perfect. Like it hmm. was, you know, no issues there. The yeah. focuser uh, worked really well. Now, you know, these old focusers, they're rack and pinion. There's only one speed. So, you know, you are a little limited that way but it, it, it worked okay. The issue is these old telescopes are fitted for 0.965 inch accessories. Oh, yeah. So uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, the other thing is the old tripods and mounts that some of them come on are okay, but they're not great. So I wanted yeah. to put it on something more modern. So um, I had an old, you know, being in astronomy for many, many years and buying and selling gear, you sort of end up with some stuff in the closet that you maybe forget about or that you just don't use because you never had a purpose for it. And uh, I had an old uh, tripod. I don't know who... I think it's a Vixen tripod. It reminds me of what comes with the uh, the porta mounts. Okay. That sort of rectangular, you know, leg as opposed to a, like a round leg. Okay. Um, so I grabbed that. Uh, I grabbed a, a Stellarview M2C mount Now the mount is probably one of the only things that is brand new in this whole setup. The rest of the stuff has been, you know, acquired through many transactions over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, I, I put some, I had some guide scope rings that I was able to put around this telescope. And then I had an old dovetail bar that I attached the rings to. Um, so that got the telescope mounted and, um, the next battle was the, uh, outfitting it for modern inch and a quarter, uh, accessories. Mm-hmm. So I had a, uh, a, a Takahashi, uh, inch and a quarter, um, um, I guess like eyepiece holder that mm-hmm. was able, it was the same threads as this old TASCO telescope, 36.4 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that just, that's, that screwed in, threaded in perfectly. So huh. now I was able to use my inch and a quarter stuff on the old TASCO um, and the TASCO that I have, it's referred to as a TASCO 152. Uh, this was made in the late fifties. Um, I'll post a picture of it. It, it doesn't, it doesn't look like a very nice telescope. It's got scratches and paint chips and, and it looks like it's lived a life. But the thing is, you know, with a telescope, like we've said before, you don't look at it, you look through it and uh, the optics are, are really good. Um, so, uh, I used a, a Bader inch and a quarter prism and mm-hmm. the, the Franken scope kind of continues. I, I used a 28 millimeter RKE eyepiece, uh, a 15 millimeter Antares Elite Plossal, uh mm. a Celestron 12 and a half millimeter Ultima, nice. and then a uh, 10 millimeter TAC LE. So, you know, this is a mishmash of all sorts of stuff from the astronomy closet. And uh, I was pretty excited to give it a try.
0: That would be a good name for this episode—is the Astronomy Closet.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Um, You you mentioned it already, and the weather wasn't spectacular Friday night. Like I would say, transparency was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, Meaning there was a lot of kind of thin cloud in the sky. You know, it it was not a night for any deep sky observing, but not bad for the Moon and Mars. So I uh, I set up. And I started with Mars and I, I wasn't able to see any albedo features. Um, I was easily able to resolve it as a, a disk and you know, mm-hmm. see the, the orange color. Um, one thing I will say is Mars definitely is, is fading, you know, compared to what it was just even a, a few weeks ago. It's yeah. noticeably smaller and certainly not as bright. Uh, yeah. I don't think we have many more days of good Mars observing, but, um, you know, I'll, if it's clear this week, I'll still try for sure. Yeah. Um, but because I couldn't see any surface details on Mars, I didn't spend much time there. Yeah. Um, I went to the moon and I, the moon was actually really good. You did good now, to get
0: back here to do a podcast after being to the moon.
1: Uh, well, you know,
0: three day trip or whatever. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I've got some secrets. <laughs> um, but the moon was, was awesome. And that uh,
0: DeLorean is also in your garage. But... <laughs>
1: yeah, a side project. Um, one thing that really, really shocked me about this telescope. So this is an achromatic refractor, which mm-hmm. an achromat typically has what we call color. And, um, you know, that's when you see like yellows or purples on bright objects. And for some people, it's really annoying. Other people, it doesn't seem to bother them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, one of the reason that these acromats are typically longer focal length is that kind of counteracts this false color that the mm-hmm. acromats can produce. So how, and, how, what's the focal ratio of this 60 millimeter again? Well, let me pull out my trusty calculator. So it is 910. Beep, boop, boop, beep, beep. 910 <laughs> divided by 60. Gives us an f15.2. F yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it should it's give you some pretty good color-free viewing. 100, I would say almost 100% color-free. It was yeah. really, really good. My Takahashi and, 60 is not color-free 100%. So yeah, yeah. Like it, hard it's hard to make on one. Par. Yeah, exactly. It's on par with um, any of the apples uh, that I've looked through in my lifetime. So very pleased with that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the this is where the night gets pretty interesting, Chris. Um, so I was spending a lot of time observing, and I'm probably not going to say this right, but De Moiso. Um, and, and it's just a kind of a, a larger um, crater that was near the Terminator. Okay. And the only reason I was looking at it is it kind of was lonely. It looked lonely. It uh, looked lonely. <laughs> yeah just it wasn't it wasn't with a, a whole lot of other detail um but itself is very detailed, so I was spending some time there and
0: yeah. then
1: I panned down the terminator and the southern polar area um was like it was concave rather than convex, which yeah. i I've never noticed that before I don't know mm-hmm. what you know what thing I observed or why it was like that um and and it was very like it was very obvious. Like it was, huh. I don't know how wide it would have been. Uh, probably like uh, like a maybe twenty percent of the width of the overall moon. It was like mm. this kind of. It looked like a little bit of a cutout. Mm. Um, so that was kind of neat. Um, but here's here's the interesting part. So um, I I never have noticed this before on the moon and. Granted, I'm not, a, I'm not a seasoned lunar observer. I, I don't spend a lot of time looking at the moon, but I, I have looked at the moon, you know, multiple times in my life. Um, and I've never noticed this, but through my peripheral vision, uh, the mares would have a brown hue to them. When I, when I looked directly at them, they were like their typical sort of sterile gray, you know, different tones of gray. Mm -hmm. And I repeated this over and over the entire session. And I was out for about 45 minutes or so. Yep. Um, All of my eyepieces um, produced this effect. And I was wondering, you know, is this just, you know, the Acromat introducing some color that the peripheral. Yeah. Um, Have you noticed this before, Chris, this, or have you observed it?
0: Yep. hundred percent. Right on. Yeah. And I remember the first time I, I noticed this as well, um, was about 12 or 13 years ago. Okay. And I was just observing from my deck. So what, what gives you the advantage, and now you can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, if you really, you may have noticed it more early on or if you're not worried about dark adaptation. And so what happens is, is that the photo, uh, the color receptors in your eye are still firing. And then you're able to kind of pick it up a little bit, a little bit easier. Like in my yard, because it's so poorly, um, well, it's 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 very well lit. Maybe I should say mm-hmm. um, my photoreceptors are are always firing out there because it's just a brightly lit uh, area. And uh, anyhow, yeah, you definitely will see that little bit of color. Um, there definitely is tonal uh, differences. Probably like up in the mirror Tranquility area.
1: If yeah, you, if, yeah, um, yep, For sure there. Yep. Um all, all of the Mares really seem to produce it. Yep. Um I've seen color on the moon before in heavily processed images. You know, like they they advertise it as true color and there's yep. there's purples, greens, oranges, browns. Um, but anyway, when, when I had this observation, I did some reading on it. Uh because I whenever I've looked at the moon previously, that I've never noticed that effect. It's always been, you know, a very icy gray. Object. Um, mm-hmm. So, in my research or in my reading, uh, you know, a number of Apollo astronauts reported that the moon has like a cocoa hue to it. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I, I started to read some other amateurs that have had, you know, kind of a similar observation. But what was interesting is there's a lot of like sort of wonder about it in terms of when you can see it and why it's not always visible. So, um, it doesn't seem that aperture or make of telescope determines your ability to see it. Uh, but what was interesting is one amateur stated he's only, he only sees it with his Mac. Uh, he doesn't see it with his refractor or his Cassegrain. Uh, another amateur stated that he sees it in all of his telescopes, which is just a collection of refractors, but, um, you know, varying focal ratios and varying apertures. mm mm-hmm. Um, some speculated, as you already alluded to that, it, it might be the sensitivity of the observer's eye, uh, mm-hmm. playing a part, you know, some people just have, um, they're just more sensitive to color and, and are able to pull that in a little bit better. Um, in all of my research, um, I didn't see anybody that observed it with a 60 millimeter telescope. And I'm only mentioning that, um, is, because if anybody is maybe wanting to try to observe this, uh, don't let aperture stop you because you know, 60 millimeters is a pretty small telescope. Um, so yeah. if I can see it there, you know, just about any telescope should probably uh, allow you to see it. Yeah. Um, but what was very consistent is that it appears that um, the, that you need a high sun angle to see this, which is, which means it, the moon needs to either be full or close to full, which okay. you know, on Friday night it was, uh, it was very close to full. I don't know what the percentage of illumination was. Um, so it was you know, I love those nights when you see something that you can't explain at the eyepiece and then you come back, you do some research and you find out more about what you saw and it sort of validates the observation. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think my, definitely my rule has always been, I'm not going to look at the moon when it's full or, you know, sometimes even close to full because there's just less to see. You know, we Mm -hmm. always, as astronomers, we like to observe near the Terminator because that's where a lot of the detail exists. Um, Yeah,
0: the difference between the light and the dark portion of the moon, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. And um, a a number of these amateur reports that I was reading about, they indicate they do like to observe the moon at full just to see if they can uh, observe this effect of seeing Mm -hmm. some color um, in in different areas of the moon. So I had a lot of fun doing this and um, it reminded me of when I... Uh, first observed clouds on Venus about four years ago uh, mm-hmm. Again, that was something I never knew was possible and then through some research found out it was possible yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah you know and, and we've talked a lot about Venus clouds uh, yep. you know in the May time frame in particular um, but anyway you know I, I thought I'd share this because it's uh, I think it's a neat observation I think it's a neat one to try if anybody um, has never seen this effect before and, um, just the fact, you know, you're always learning in this hobby, you know, like I wasn't aware of this, uh, uh, you know, color on the moon being a visual observation, and I certainly wasn't aware of, of when you should try to observe that, which is near a full moon. Um, so yeah, it was a fun night and, uh, I definitely will be looking at the moon a little bit more, especially around full, uh, mm-hmm. just to see if I can capture some more of that, uh, color. Yeah. Well, I
0: like Based on your description, I definitely 100 think you saw it. I have no doubt uh, you're a very good observer, Shane. And you know that is sort of one of the neat things you know about about the observing. I find like you know you're you're into that phase now, and you know same same with me. We're on the same experience level where like you when you start doing astronomy, you know like we did years and years ago, everything is is kind of new, and you're kind of like everything you see, you're discovering it for the first time. And then you kind of go through a period where you're just kind of building up the skill of the actual observing itself. So, you know, and it is challenging to go out and find stuff for the first time, um, you know, whether you're trying to find fainter planets or galaxies and nebulae or or even just identifying the constellations for the first time is, is a challenge in itself. And we recognize that and and trying to help people out here by, by doing these podcasts. But, uh, but then, you know, you go through this phase of, of, uh, you know, exploring a little deeper and then honing those skills. And then you kind of enter another phase, sort of all anew where you're kind of sort of discovering uh, more and more of these things. But uh, yeah, hundred percent definitely saw some of those, so you're just describing them more as like a, like a brownie uh, brownish color or tone. I thought maybe they, maybe they just had a tinge of red to, to my eye, but I've seen mm-hmm. them as well. Um, and not consistent, um, either. Uh, I think I was using my six inch max Sudov when I was making those observations and, uh, yeah, it's yeah. Really neat, really neat observations there.
1: Yeah. You know, and I guess maybe one other note I'll say is, is just trust your eyes um, like I was willing to write that off as just a, an effect of an achromatic telescope, especially being it was the first time I'd ever used that telescope, first time I ever saw that observation. Um, and then I thought the next day, so Saturday morning, I thought, you know, I'm I'm just going to Google this and see if anybody else has seen some brown on the moon. And then, you know, I went down the rabbit's path and and found all sorts of information on it. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you think you see something don't write it off, you know, record the observation and then research it to validate it or try to observe it again to validate what you saw, because uh, oftentimes um, you probably did see something and it just needs an explanation.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think that's, that's really neat, you know, and just sort of thinking on um, some of your research, which I, I really didn't research it that much, but what was strange and sort of, what what corroborated my experience was and I I may have even said this before is so I was out observing the moon from and we had this like when I say deck boy our patio or whatever it was like uh I think three by six feet um you know off our apartment on the second story of this small building and uh and I could see a good piece of sky um so I was, I was observing and I came in and I said to, to my wife, uh, I said, boy, like, I think I can see color. So I had her come out and take a look. She was like, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'm not really sure. And then a friend actually called me who was observing from the driveway of his shop. He was like, are you looking at the moon? I'm like, yeah. And he, Did you see the
1: color? <laughs> you know so oh, Wow.
0: Yeah. So that, that night really, because I was kind of doubtful and I thought, well, nobody else is going to be out looking at the full moon. And then uh, anyway, so uh, so yeah, I've kind of had that sort of in real time uh, corroborated by by another observer, which was kind of a, a strange experience. So, But, uh, you know, I don't doubt that you were seeing that, Shane. I think, uh, you know, uh, there's certainly been more outlandish observations that we've probably made together.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. And, and again, you know, confirming it by hearing or uh, uh, reading about other amateurs that have observed it. And actually, I'll tweet out a picture. Um in one of the cloudy night threads, uh, that I was reading, um, a person linked some images of the moon that had brownish tones and another amateur said, yes, that's exactly what I saw. Okay. Well, and then go. when I saw the images, I was like, yes, that's exactly what I saw too. Yeah. So I, I will mean, send those out. Cause it, yeah. it is an interesting, uh, phenomenon.
0: Yeah. So, so you saw it, other, other people saw it, uh, people recorded it on, you know, photographs, um, you know, yeah, that, that, that's really, really cool though. Very, very good observation really makes me wish that, uh, I had been able to, uh, to get out and do some of that, uh, some of that observing that night actually, you know, and just kind of, you know, talking a bit, I was, I was, and I put a bunch of notes in here, but I guess it doesn't really matter. Um, but I was thinking about doing some more lunar observing actually, just because of, um, the planets are now leaving the skies you you were saying you know mars is getting further away i think we said in the dis- objects to observe in the december sky it's going to be um, the better part of a magnitude fainter pretty much a magnitude fainter by the end of the month um and it's already getting kind of small though still well worth uh, taking a look at uh, and jupiter and saturn are going to do this neat dance but it's not really we're sort of out of the time of observing good detail in the rings or, or any kind of the the cloud features on, on Jupiter. And so, so the planets are kind of moving off. And, uh, I was thinking, you know, like that's sort of a bit of a, an end to like this year's observing, you know, kind of as far as having a plan, you know, that, that I was making up at about this time last year to observe the planets, which started, I think you referred to this, um, with those Venus observations and and making some Venusian cloud observations, um, in, in the March and April timeframe and then moving into observing Jupiter and Saturn and, and uh, uh, then Venus in the morning sky, and then the Mars opposition and then hunting down Neptune and Uranus. And, and then with the comet that, that came around sort of in, in the only period of time where I'd sort of planned to do deep sky observing um, Yeah, it was kind of a strange year in a way. Usually I do more deep sky observing than planetary observing. And, you know, now with the, the sort of uh, continuation of, of sort of round two of the pandemic, uh, I was thinking maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll get a variable, variable polarizing filter and, uh, and start, start diving into the moon a little bit more.
1: Yeah, that's part of my plan as well. Um, I've, I've dabbled with the moon in the past, but then I get lured back into deep sky observing and, and other observing projects. But, you know, like you said, it, you know, with all of the things going on around us, it, sort of makes sense to sit in your backyard and just observe the moon and there's so much to see there and Mm -hmm. you know of all of the objects in the sky you know i think you and i are both you're you're exceptional at pointing out where various you know galaxies nebulas all sorts of deep sky objects are located you you know the sky very well um i i think it would be great to get to that level on the moon where you can just you know, look at the moon (laughs) through a telescope and identify like the named craters and know which ones you're looking at and which ones are, you know, about to be visible on the terminator, all of that kind of stuff. uh, Mm -hmm. is is a little bit of a goal of mine, right. To, to just get to know the moon better so that when I'm looking at it um, you know, I can relate to it better. I I know some of the key features, but you know, there's so many craters and so many features to learn. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think I need to get a chair, like, you know, for sure. Like I need to get a chair. I noticed that during my last few, few sessions. Um, and when you're trying to sit and observe things like the planets or the moon for a long period of time, what am I learning to, to sketch the moon? I, you know, I, I've been looking at, uh, uh, several people's sketches and, uh, I don't know. I'm not much of a sketch artist really, you know, I'm better at the deep sky sketching, I think. Uh, but, uh, maybe start trying to, trying to do a bit more on, uh, on the moon or, or, you know, try, try to get into it a little bit, you know, maybe, maybe do one of the lunar observing programs or, or something to that effect. I don't know. Were you you ever working on the Williamson observing the moon program or whatever it's called?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I started it many years ago and, um, I didn't get very far, you know, I think I did 10 or 20 objects. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's like 260
0: or some easy number like that.
1: Well, and I think there's like a bunch of challenge objects on there as well. Like there's just the main objects to get the certification. But if, if you really are enjoying the moon, um, there's a bunch of additional things that are a part of that list. Mm -hmm. Um, so anyway, my plan is basically to restart it and, and just work my way through it because I do, I like, I am a big fan of observing lists to help plan and focus some of your sessions and with something like the moon, I think a list is ideal because again, it helps you learn it. You know, it'll, if you want to observe Tycho. well, you know, you've got to learn where Tycho is and what it looks like. So, mm-hmm. you know, it helps you with all of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that would be, uh, that would be an interesting uh, thing to work on. And we're talking, uh, uh, I was talking about maybe getting a polarized polarizing filter and maybe an observing chair. Um, Boy, I'd like to get more eyepieces. I always want more
1: eyepieces, right? So, yeah, that can be a bad addiction, uh, it yeah. is for me, <laughs> you know. Because yeah. I'm thinking of getting a bino viewer. I, I you again, know, you, know, I, you had I, one before, didn't you? I did, I did. And, um, so, um, the, the gentleman that I bought some TMB super monocentrics off of is a, mm. a bino viewer or was a bino viewer, mm-hmm. um, and has vinyl viewed for many, many years. Now, when I was into vinyl viewing, um, so I I had the uh, Dankmeyer BINOTRON 27, which is their, I think their most current one. Um, And it has a neat thing in it called a power switch. So the power switch, you you put in your eyepieces and then the power switch will vary. It it basically is like a variable Barlow and Hmm. there's three settings to the power switch and it's just a slider and it just puts a different lens in the optical path. And it just varies your, your magnification. So you don't have to swap out your eyepieces in the vinyl viewer, because mm-hmm. one of the big knocks with the vinyl viewer is, you know, you need two of every eyepiece. And if you want to increase magnification, you're taking out two eyepieces and you're putting in two new eyepieces. Uh, so the power switch essentially, you know, allows you to own one set of uh, eyepieces and then just, you know, slide the switch and away you go. Mm-hmm. So um, the eyepieces that I had used for that were two 24 millimeter panoptics, uh, mm-hmm. which give you the widest field of view that you can get pretty much from you know, one and for a quarter. And a quarter. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was kind of disappointed when I looked at the planets. Like there's a noticeable um, loss of light. Like I remember looking at Saturn and, and um, like Titan wasn't that visible uh, with the binocular. But when I went to mono, you know, just one eyepiece traditional viewing, it was so much brighter. Mm-hmm. So, um, it kind of turned me off actually on, on viewing. So anyway, long story, I'm uh, getting to my point. I asked this gentleman about, um, viewing with complex eyepieces like Panoptics versus binocular viewing with, you know, specialized simple eyepieces like the TMB super monos. And he said, like, there really is no comparison, you know, using the, the super monos, Versus uh, a complex wide field eyepiece made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of thinking of getting back into bino viewing. Um, you know, maybe using orthoscopics or, or something, you know, with simpler glass. and mm-hmm. um, Maybe
0: some of those uh, uh, have been, uh, RKEs.
1: Well, I still, I still have a number of the Takahashi 0.965 orthos, which are very okay. well regarded. And you'd have to take your glasses off to use those, wouldn't you? Oh, for sure you would. But same yeah. with the RKEs, right? Those, oh, okay. those are all pretty poor for eye relief. Um, but the nice thing, you know, with bino viewing is, um, and this is starting to become a small annoyance of mine, but I imagine it will only get worse with age, is, is floaters, right? Mm. When you're looking at a bright object like a planet and you're using high magnifications, Uh, if your eye has floaters all of the time, you just don't notice them unless you're looking at a bright object through a telescope with high magnification and you see like these little like cells basically kind of floating past and it can, it can actually, you know, prevent you from seeing some detail on the planets. And some people have really bad floaters. Some people don't. Oh,
0: but I'm terrible. I can see them in my dark room here.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So so a Bino viewer really helps you overcome that. Um, your brain sort of cancels out the floaters because only one eye has one set of floaters, and anyway the brain does some magic, and they they tend to disappear. Mm. Um, plus, there's just like that comfort level. Like one thing that I did love when I was binocular viewing a couple of years ago was just how relaxing it was to look through the uh, the binocular. Like mm. you know when you're doing single eye observation you do have to take a break. Like you can't just hold your one eye open. At least I can't, I can't hold my one eye open for like 45 minutes and not take a little bit of a break because my eye just gets really fatigued doing that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when you're just sitting like with both your eyes open, looking through the binocular viewer, it's a really, really pleasant experience. So okay. anyway, I haven't made up my mind yet, but I'm, what would you get for a binocular
0: viewer if you're going to do it again? Would you get the same one again?
1: No, no, I would not. Um, so here's, the, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, the BinoTron is a fantastic Bino viewer. And one of the things that they advertise as a feature is you can uh, collimate it. So if a binocular isn't collimated correctly, you will see double when you're looking through uh, the binocular. Okay. And the same thing applies with the Bino viewer and the BinoTron. So like, I, you know, it comes with a wrench, you loosen some things, you can collimate it. And uh, then you stop seeing double, which is a problem that some people have with vinyl viewers. Now, that actually became a real pain, as as far as I was concerned. I felt like I was having to adjust that far too often, and mm-hmm. um, that was another reason to sell it. Now, since then, uh, Bater uh, has released a an updated. So they have two vinyl viewers. They have like kind of an entry level one, and then a high end one. Uh, I think the high end one is called like a Mark Five. Um, and that I think it's over $2,000 Canadian. It's, wow. it's not, yeah, it's not anything I'm going to spend my money on. It's just too much. Um, now the entry-level one that they have is called the Max Bright and, uh, they just released a second version of that. So it's the Max Bright. Max Bright 2. 2. Yeah. And by entry level. I'm Googling
0: these while you're talking about them. So. <laughs> oh,
1: cool. Yeah, good. Um, so the Max Bright 2, while it's an entry-level for beta, it's far superior to like the, the entry-level Bino viewers that are out there, at least from what I've read. Um, and the other entry-levels would be like, you know, William Optics has one. Um, I think just about every other maker of Optics has a Bino viewer out there. Um, so what's really nice about this Bader uh, Bright 2, and this is the one that I would go with if I get back into it, is um, for the eyepiece holders, they use the click-stop eyepiece oh, holder, which like. you and I both love. Yep. we
0: like uh, the click stop from Bader. That is yep. a really, that is a really underappreciated astronomical tool. That mm-hmm. uh, I'm not a fan of gadgets. Uh, astronomy, visual astronomy, can be really gadget heavy, and that is like one of those things I was pretty meh about. But the click lock Bader. Uh, attachment process is awesome. Deadly works better than
1: advertised. Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Feels the, solid. The, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. The, the other reason why Bader really appeals to me is, so I have a Bader prism and I have a Bader diagonal and the thing with Bader stuff is they all use, um, like T2 attachments and they have all sorts of adapters. So it all mates together very well. Um, now, why this is important with a vinyl viewer is a vinyl viewer adds an awful lot of distance to your optical path. And sometimes achieving, achieving, focus can be challenging. And in order to achieve focus, you have to use like a, it's essentially an inline Barlow, um, which increases magnification and reduces your field of view. Now, if you use all Bader's stuff and use their adapters, you can shorten that light path, which is really important with bino viewing. Um, so that also apply or intrigues me because if I get back into bino viewing, it's not just for planets. Like I would really like to try it out on the deep sky stuff. And mm. then, you know, for deep sky stuff, you're, you're more interested in wide field views. Mm-hmm. Um, so the shorter the light path, the wider the field, um, you know, I think it helps with that part of the hobby as well. So again, I haven't made the decision to fully commit, um, you know, to commit to Bino viewing is, is a commitment of spending, you know, some money because not only do you need the Bino viewer, you now need doubles of some eyepieces. So then you have to think about which eyepieces are important. And uh, you know, it's a bit of a, if I go down this path, it's a journey. It certainly won't happen on day one.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm just looking at uh, Bill Pialini, if I'm saying his name right from cloudy nights has a review
1: up on it from last May Yeah. He loves it. It's a very glowing review. Um, you know, and that's, again, that's another one of, he's, he's, he's a bad influence actually. I've bought a lot of terrible, terrible. We're being
0: facetious, but a terrible person for getting you to buy more equipment. You don't need (laughs) (laughs) exactly. He actually seems like a super nice person. I feel like he'd be like the most chill, relaxed person you'd ever meet. And then you'd be like, but I wait, what happened to all my money?
1: yeah he doesn't but, sell but, anything
0: he's just an amateur like us that has a love for gear
1: <laughs> yeah and and i really respect his reviews because he has a very almost scientific approach to how he does his reviews they're not yeah. like they're very well controlled um, they're not he's flowery
0: very, or anything like
1: that yeah and he's very transparent with how he does his uh, assessments Mm. and um so anyway when when bill writes something i i take note of it i read it and i i trust it and um yeah his review of the max bright twos is is really really positive so yeah um yeah it's got me thinking
0: yeah he's also using it in a six inch one of those um more affordable six six inch apochromats. I would, Mm -hmm. I would like to have a six inch apochromatic telescope because, because I now have, I just, I only need two more telescopes. Then I'll have a nice set. I I have a 60, um, I have a hundred millimeter. I'd like to get uh, the the 76 and, and, and then I have a five inch and then it'd be nice to have a six inch. And then that would be my, I'd have a nice lineup of apochromatic telescopes at that point. I feel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That would be sufficient. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, that that the one thing though that is sort of holding me back right now and why why I'm saying this is you know something I'm still pondering is that is the key. Like like I think the smallest telescope that Bill used is probably his uh his 102 millimeter, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, he was using it on a on a TSA.
1: Yeah. So So a a binocular viewer does rob you of some of the light uh, because every time light bounces off of a surface or passes, uh, you know, through glass and you add surfaces, you're going to lose a little bit of light along
0: the way. Yeah. But Um, I think you should still get a vintage. uh, um, What do they call an FC or an MC Tac hundred? I just want to compare it to my hundred. I'm just, (laughs) I almost want to buy it. it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'll buy the binocular. viewer. You buy another Tac 100. Yeah.
0: Yeah, 200 millimeter tax might be, that might be taxing
1: on my household. Oh, it would be. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, the because of the Bino Viewer not, or because the Bino Viewer does rob you of some light, um, you know, one of the underlying things is you usually only use it on larger telescopes, like, you know, Newtonians or Cassegrain's. Um, So using it on small refractors usually just isn't done that often, not to say it can't be done. And and certainly there's many, many uh, amateurs that use them on telescopes, like, you know, my 76 millimeter, for example. So it's possible. Um, Anyway, more thinking that I need to do on that. Um, And, and, you know, with Christmas coming, that's an easy way to justify a a new purchase. (laughs) Yeah. Anything else in your Christmas list? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, no, no, I, I certainly don't need anything. I don't need a bino viewer. I'm very well kitted out. Um, but, uh, you know, I think a bino viewer would be fun.
0: Yeah,
1: I think, I think so. I think What's so. on your Christmas list, Chris? Well, I think
0: like the variable polarizing filter, I think that's I think around 40 bucks or so. So it's not yeah. an incredibly expensive thing. I, I think I'd like to get that. I think I'd like to get a chair um, like a proper observing chair. I I have other observing chairs that has been kind of built and cobbled together over the years, but I think it's time to get a, to get a proper chair. And, um, yeah, I keep thinking about like another five millimeter. I I bought the Nikon Barlow, um, which I do like quite a bit. Um, and definitely it's staying like, I'm not a huge Barlow fan, but I do like it. Um, but the one drawback is, is that at the, uh, when I'm using it, I, I can't use it in my 60 millimeter with the extension tube. So at F10, it, it won't come to focus. Um, and then as well, there, there is a little bit of that futz factor. I think it's awesome when I want to borrow something and get some, some slightly different power and everything, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it, uh, it, it's one of those things I'm going to keep it, but. I think I still do need probably that five millimeter and uh, still thinking in the back of my head about uh, maybe getting uh, the 30 millimeter uh, Masuyama 85 degree or 31 millimeter Nagler. Uh, and I've always wanted to get, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but a uh, number of years ago, um, cause I don't, I don't really get or read as, as much Australian magazines anymore. I just don't have the time, unfortunately, but there was uh there was an article and you were like, Oh, you have to read, I forget what the article was, but you're like, Oh, you have to read this article. So you actually gave me an astronomy magazine that you were, you were finished with. And I had it sitting on my Ottoman forever. And uh, I flipped it over one day and had these, the the ad for the 12 and 17 millimeter Explorer scientific 92 degree eyepieces. And I was like, Ooh, I really want one of those. So I've always kind of wanted one of those due to your influence, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Chris, if you're, if you're thinking about Nikon, you may want to, you know, jump on that. Um, I'm not sure if you've been following their, their business or their financial reports recently, but um, they released some financial numbers here just in November, uh, just a few weeks ago, and they were awful and uh, the company is not doing so well. And there's rumors of all sorts of, you know, potential changes and, you know, the, or, um, uh, maybe reducing some of their business lines. Mm. Um, so, you know, when companies, you know, you know, optical companies start to go into financial troubles, um, sometimes they shut down the astronomy side of things because, yeah. you know, it's usually not a big money maker for them in terms of like Nikon, you, you know, their bread and butter is, is cameras and camera lenses for the most part. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in the eyepieces, um, you may want to think about doing that sooner than later. They haven't announced anything like the, as far as I know, anyway, the eyepieces are still going to be made, but you know they could they could also make a decision or end that very soon. Yeah,
0: I you know I had borrowed that that five millimeter from you um, earlier last year and, and into the summer and probably kept it longer than I ought to have. I, I did really like it. Um, I liked it more than I thought I would. I sort of had read a lot of um, you know what can best be be described as kind of neutral, maybe somewhat negative reviews of it. So. I sort of had had somewhat tempered my my expectations, and you you even had some trouble with eye placement and that sort of thing. Um, however, in my 100 millimeter, uh, that five millimeter was one of the one of the best eyepieces that uh, that I've ever used. Um, so so I quite I quite liked it. And then in, in the digging around, it seems that the 10 and the seven um, get about the same praise as as that five. And mm-hmm. I I often have thought. And, and the reason, so there's two reasons I really like that eyepiece. Um, optically, I thought it was really good. I thought it was one of the best eyepieces I ever used. I did experience some of the eye placement issues that, that you had mentioned, like definitely that's there much less on my hundred millimeter than on my other telescopes for whatever reason, I don't know, even telescopes running at or near the same focal ratio, um, didn't work as well, but the hundred millimeter, and, you know, I got to admit that Takahashi hundred, I know people are always asking me about it and I get more questions about it than I, than I feel like Um, maybe I should, because, you know, I'm not really that focused on any one particular instrument, but that instrument is, is maybe just a little bit uh, special in some odd way. I don't know why, Um, but I didn't have that problem hardly at all with it. Um, But also uh, they're very light. Like they're super small and lightweight Mm -hmm. eyepieces. Mm -hmm. And I kind of felt like they gave you um, sort of Pentax-like performance. And I have most of the Pentaxes, except for the five, uh, in such a small form factor. And uh, so typically I can only take uh, three of the Pentaxes with me. And then my eyepiece case is is full up. Plus, like you can only do so much observing in the field. Uh, But then even with those three and a a low-power eyepiece or two, like, you're hauling a lot of heavy glass with the pentaxes. But I think the Nikons are about like a third of the weight or something. It's, it's a huge, huge difference. And uh, so one, I could actually take more eyepieces with me and then, uh, you know, they're not taking up as much space nor the weight. So uh, yeah. So I'm kind of interested in the 10, seven and five. I thought maybe eventually I'd get those. So yeah. Thanks. Thanks for letting me know um, Hey, maybe they'll do a clearance and I'll, I'll pick them up. I've been looking used. You mentioned to look for them used and, mm-hmm. you know, I think people are either born to sh- shop on the used websites or not. And I don't think I'm one of those people because I look and look and look. And then as soon as I stop looking, whatever I want, it came up. Or when I do want something really bad, it comes up before I have the money saved up to buy it. And then I never can find it again like that. Mm-hmm. open anyway I've been looking for these used but uh, but but the pricing is you know four or five hundred dollars Canadian uh, which is beyond my my price range for an eye for an eyepiece let alone three so um, yeah
1: know yeah, yeah, they can be pricey
0: I think you said you were able to find that five in the in the you know sort of half that range so I, I've been looking I just haven't seen it yet but we'll see
1: yeah yeah Well, you never know, right? Uh, Sometimes they pop up when you least expect it. Um, Sometimes I find want ads work pretty good too. Like that's how I was able to come across some of my super monos, which um, are pretty hard eyepieces to find. So Mm. you just never know. Yeah. Good stuff.
0: Well, Shane, anything else to add on this our 71st episode?
1: No, Chris, uh, that's it. Uh, I will keep my fingers crossed that we have some cloudless skies this week and uh, we'll have more to report next week for observing.
0: Super. Well, thanks so much, Shane.
1: Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to ask us questions or leave feedback, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy or you can email us. We are Astronomy at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast with a donation, uh, we are selling merchandise at teespring.com stores slash actual astronomy. We wish you all clear and dark skies.